Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about coronavirus, the growth of the illness across the UK, the government's response and where it's going to be heading next. Plus, we'll also be digging into the related collapse of Flybee and what it says about the government's industrial policy. And we'll be looking at Pretty Patel's falling out with Sir Philip Rodnam and what the Johnson's government's attitude is going to be towards the civil service now and in the future. I'm delighted to be joined by our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, political correspondent, Laura Hughes, deputy opinion editor, Miranda Green, and special guest, Jill Rutter from the Institute of Government, who is formerly a senior civil servant. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. As you know, we absolutely love those good reviews. So coronavirus has dominated the whole news in the UK this week, with 116 cases now reported at the time of recording and the first death within the UK from the disease announced on Thursday. Boris Johnson began the coronavirus outbreak very much on the back foot. He didn't seem to be in control, he was nowhere to be seen, and the government didn't seem to have much of a plan. That has turned around this week, where the PM has been on the front foot. He's even broken his ban on certain TV programmes to go out there and try and take the message to the country that the government has got everything under control. So Laura Hughes, you've spent this week absolutely living, breathing, sleeping, thinking about coronavirus, but do not have coronavirus yet, which is a good Things. Let's start where we were at the beginning of the week, that obviously this thing was spreading quite rapidly, but there was this general sense that we didn't know where Boris Johnson was. The last thing we heard from him was when he announced that he was going to become a father again and was engaged to his partner, Carrie Simmons, but he hadn't actually said anything about coronavirus and what the government was doing. Yeah, I think this in retrospect will be the moment the government seemed to sort of grow up and go from campaign mode to governing. And We have seen the Prime Minister out there stood alongside experts, the Chief Medical Officer, Chief Scientific Officer. And really what the government is trying to do is they're trying to say to the public, we are taking the advice of the experts here. And some have pointed out that's a little ironic because during the Brexit campaign, the likes of Michael Gove came out and said that people had had enough of experts. What we're realising is that really the public haven't and the reassuring figure of Chris Whitty appearing on our TV screens and on the radio every morning has really been part of the government's strategy of trying to depoliticise this in many ways because actually, yes, they will be taking the advice of the experts, but there will come a point where decisions that have to be made 
will become a little political because you, as the Prime Minister, have to judge and balance the social and economic cost of any new measures that we might see the government start to introduce next week. Jim Picard, last weekend it was reported the PM was going to become more actively involved, which was a tacit acknowledgement from Downing Street that they hadn't taken this as seriously as maybe they should have. That as very much as what we've seen, that he has been out there from the sofa on this morning with Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby to giving a press conference to setting out a plan. And his message very much has been, as Laura was saying, this is not a political issue. We're working across this from devolved governments or political parties, medical experts. But eventually it will become political when they have to take tough decisions about, you know, what's going to happen to schools, what's going to happen to public services, what's going to happen to the economy as well. Exactly. So there have been some initiatives that the government have done. For example, statutory sick pay will now be paid from day one, not from day four, as it was before. But I think we have to pour a little bit of cold water on the idea that this sort of glow around Boris Johnson that he's had over the last few days because he's seemed competent and, and he seemed quite professional in his handling of this. I still remember Gordon Brown back in the summer of 2007. He'd just become Prime Minister and people were very much impressed by his handling of whatever agricultural outbreak was happening at the time. And it wasn't much longer after that the scales fell off people's eyes in terms of Gordon Brown's ability to make difficult decisions and be a kind of imaginative Prime Minister. And as you were saying, Seb, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson hasn't yet had to make any of the really difficult decisions. He's just been quite open about what's coming down the tracks. And one thing we should remember is that when this kind of thing happens, there's a kind of political benefit of being in charge and that you're the person who gets to stand next to the really clever scientific experts. You're the person that looks like you're in charge of things. If you're a leader of the Labour Party at the moment like this, you don't look very statesmanlike because you're not in charge. But let's see how Boris Johnson looks in a month's time. Law, let's jump back to Tuesday because that was the day when the big plan came together where Boris Johnson did a press conference, his first one I think possibly since the general election where he stood up, as you said, with two of the UK's top scientific experts and announced their plan and there are four phases to this plan. Can you just take us through what they are and where we're at at the moment? Yeah, so there's this four-point plan. At the moment we're still at the end stage actually of the containment phase and that's about identifying who has contracted this, trying to treat them or keeping them at home. We know that people that have come from specific areas of Italy, for example, or Iran, they've been told to stay at home for 14 days and to self-isolate. So at this stage, it hasn't really impacted daily life. The only thing the public are being told is to wash their hands. But we are now sort of reaching that in-between phase and we're moving to the delay phase And that's the point where we might start to see things change. And this is what people are going to be talking about at the moment. There's a COBRA meeting on Monday and there are some very specific things that the government have said could be involved in this plan. And that is closing down schools or telling people to work from home and then shutting down or banning big mass gatherings of people. There are huge, huge financial costs to this and social costs. And these are really difficult decisions the Prime Minister is going to have to make. So if we move into that, we're all going to know about it. If it continues to get worse, we go into what's called the research phase. And that's when more and more money is going to be bumped in to finding a vaccine, trying to find ways to catch it quicker. I think the government have already put £40 million in, but I would expect more money to go into that. And then the next phase is mitigate. And that is the really serious one that you're going to know about. That is the worst case scenario. Those are the headline stories. So 
NHS will be asked to put non-emergency operations on hold. The police will only be reacting and responding to the most critical examples and cases of crime. Doctors and nurses who had retired could be brought back into the NHS. That is the worst case scenario. And the government are working to the absolute upper limit. Worst case, 80% of people by that point will have contracted this. But still, there's only a 1% mortality rate. And that would mean maybe half a million people potentially dying from coronavirus in the UK. Why aren't they pouring loads of money into developing a vaccine right now? I think they are putting some money, but it's that research phase, I think, that gets massively stepped up as part of this four-point plan. And I think part of it is learning more about the disease as well, because one of the big things from the government is to try and delay, as you were saying, Laura, as much as possible, because we're still in winter, the NHS is still under pressure, and their hope is that if they can delay a potential mass outbreak until April, May, the kind of things we've heard about this week, then the NHS will be under less strain. But we shouldn't be under any doubt Jim, that if we do hit this big outbreak, as Laura was saying, Professor Chris Whitty has talked about up to an 80% outbreak, that's going to put such a huge strain on the NHS. And we saw on Friday reports saying that if it does reach those levels, because for most people, coronavirus is just like the flu, essentially, that they just want people to stay at home and to deal with it on their own terms, because if everybody goes to hospital, then the whole health service will just collapse. Exactly. And obviously, all hospitals are on standby, and they've got these coronavirus pods outside them. They're ready for the wave that's about to come. But the economic impact of this, you know, we haven't gone into that yet. And we've got the budget next week, where it'd be interesting to see how that impacts on what Rishi Sunak, the new Chancellor, says. The airline industry has issued a report yesterday suggesting that they're standing to lose $113 billion off this. And you think about the leisure industry and you think about basically all industries and sectors that could see up to 20% of people at any one time either being sick or self-quarantining and what the implications of that are. And then you look again at, you know, yes, the government has said that people will have statutory pay from day one if they get sick or if they self-quarantine, but that's a pretty small amount of money. People aren't going to be paid if they are off for very long periods of time, and that's particularly acute for people who are self-employed, people on zero-hours contracts, and that's when decision-making is going to become much more dicey for this government. And if we end up in a recession, the fiscal consequences of that could be very major indeed for this new government. It sort of feels like it's been quite hard, Laura, if it does go to those further stages to avoid a recession because UK growth swap 1.4% projected towards this year. And the IMF has said that coronavirus has got the potential to half global growth if it does continue, depending on how it pans out there. And of course, Boris Johnson came in on this big spend agenda, I'd say tax, but he's really trying to cut taxes and spend and borrow at the same time. And this budget coming up next Wednesday is a big moment for the government where they really want to deliver and show to the new Conservative voters in the Red Wall that they are speaking to them, but also deliver some nice healthy tax cuts as we saw with Sajid Javid's interview in the Times last weekend there were plans to do both of those things what's your sense on how much will get scaled back do you think I know it's impossible guessing with budgets but how much do you think they'll still be able to do given all these uncertainties well given in the background analysts are predicting that potentially the financial impact of coronavirus could be as severe as the 2008 financial crash. Any chancellor is going to have that in the back of his head. I reckon it's going to be massively scaled down and the government will make the calculation that at this point it's better to wait to the spending review or the autumn budget to make big policy announcements and they've got a manifesto to keep to but actually right now clearly coronavirus is the priority making sure the NHS has enough money 
And as Jim pointed to, real problems here, and this is where it becomes a political decision. If you start to tell people to work from home or not to go to work, politically, you're asking the less well-off in society to take the financial hit on behalf of the whole population and their health. And, And that's a huge thing to do. And so I would expect that maybe the budget might have something in there to make sure that people that are earning less than £118 a week are entitled to some statutory sick pay so that they don't have to make those decisions. And it will also be interesting to see that there are people that can afford to go and buy 100 rolls of loo roll and there are others that really can't. And this is going to become a huge problem for the government if we see a divide there in terms of people's response and their ability to handle this. A huge problem for lots of people in red wall seats who want the Tories to do something that makes their life better. It feels to me, Jim, that what Rishi Sunak may actually end up doing is announcing a lot of consultations on things that we've heard rumours on. If you take fuel duty, for example, he might not actually do big things now because it's too risky, both politically and economically, but use the budget to say we're going to look at this and then when we come to the next budget later in the year when things may have calmed down with coronavirus and then make the big, bold reforms that have been talked about in the Treasury. Yeah, I think that's quite possible. And certainly governments in recent years have made a habit of doing that. If you look at Michael Gove back in DEFRA, loads of things that people got excited about that Michael Gove was supposedly doing were only ever consultations that never came to fruition. So I wouldn't be surprised. Or they might actually shelve some of those things they were planning to do, or they might shelve those consultations. I was going to say as well that the point Laura was making earlier about how this could impact on low earners. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn had his PMQs on Wednesday and actually had quite a good outing. You know, he's not completely obsolete for another month and he was using a phrase I can't remember how he worded it but it was there are going to be a lot of workers on low pay who are going to have a choice between sickness and hardship and the way he expressed it I thought was quite impressive and finally, Jim, I just want to come to another topic, which is Flybe, the collapse of the UK's regional airline that you've written about this week. Flybe is a very sort of hodgepodge airline that does lots of small services from regional airports around the country. And I think, as somebody said, if Flybe didn't exist, it would be very hard to invent it because it does so many small different routes. It has collapsed. Take us through why it collapsed and also how this is linked to coronavirus. So listeners will probably remember back in January that Flybe was about to collapse then and the government came forward with a package of measures which reassured the existing shareholders, including Virgin and Stobart, to carry on investing a bit further. But I think coverage at the time gave the impression that that it was a dumb deal and that the company was saved. And Grant Shapps didn't really help. There's a tweet of him from January grinning away and saying, we've saved Flybe and it's got a future of several years ahead of it. But actually, when you looked at that package of measures, there was a tiny deferment of about 10% of their outgoing tax bill for about a month. Everything else was contingent. So there was this promise to look at cuts in air passenger duty. There was a promise to talk about a £100 million loan. And there was a promise to have a think about regional connectivity. And they sort of thought the issue had gone away for a little while and they could come back to it in the budget. And then meanwhile, what happened was, yes, coronavirus. I mean, you could sort of say Flybe was the canary in the coal mine in some ways. It's just been swept away by this incredible impact on the airline industry with all the major airlines warning about the hit to profits, chopping routes left, right and centre. You've got Virgin cutting pay for their executives because they're so worried about the situation. And yes, a company that has struggled, that made losses in seven of the last 10 years, was always going to have a difficult time. And, And so I think more or less simultaneously, the shareholders pulled the plug 
and the government concluded that it wasn't going to do this 100 million pounds loan that the company wanted. And yes, it's very sad for 2,400 people who work for them. And it also has major impact on these cities and towns like Exeter and Anglesey and Southampton, where Flybe was by far the main operator. You know, looking forward, and will the government do enough to save some of those airports or could some of them actually close down as a result of this? It's too early to say, but there's a lot of alarm out there. Because, Laura, politically, when you looked at this, when the rescue package for Flybe was announced, this was very much criticised by right-wing conservatives saying this is a market failure, you should let it just go, and the government shouldn't be doing this kind of package that Jim was talking about. To those people, they've actually been vindicated, they may say, by that argument because they tried to prop it up. It didn't work. And that speaks to why, you know, from the right wing conservative space, you let the market work. But for other people, you know, in those regional airports, many of them who voted conservative, they'll feel disappointed that this thing that they see as a critical piece of national infrastructure, providing these flights, keeping these airports afloat, has just been totally cut off. And some of the flight routes will be picked up by other airlines, but not all of them will, because a lot of them aren't profitable. Yeah, I mean, this is actually really bad for the government in terms of their levelling up agenda, regional connectivity. This is the last thing that they would want to happen. You have HS2 in the background, delays to that, the cost of that. So it was a political decision. But I mean, the government were always quite clear if it wasn't financially viable for them to continue to support Flybe, they weren't going to do that. And it just reached a point where it just didn't make economic sense for them politically. Yes, there is a cost to that too. But the government had to weigh those two things up, really. I think there are two other kind of macro issues that Flybe really highlights. And one of them is that Boris Johnson has consistently said that he wants a sovereign state aid policy once we've broken free of the shackles of the Europeans' restrictive state aid policy. But the question for the Prime Minister is, if you're not really prepared to step in to help this company, which, as you've both pointed out, has been highlighted by the Johnson administration as being crucial for the levelling up agenda, which industries does this Tory government want to help and when and in which way? Because if you aren't prepared to do this, then what and when? And then the second issue is to come back to is that, of course, the government has this 2050 zero carbon target, which we often talk about here. Now, helping airlines when airlines are one of the most polluting or carbon producing industries we've got would have cut right across that. And had they gone ahead and cut APD air passenger duty in the budget, that would have been very much criticised by the carbon climate lobby. And so they're balancing all of these things. And you can't help just getting a bit of a sense with HS2, with them sort of blocking Heathrow off the back of the judicial review the other day, and this that their transport agenda is looking all a bit accidental and not very strategic at all. Although coronavirus has dominated most of the news this week, the other big story has been about the civil service. Last Saturday morning, Philip Rutnam, who was Permanent Secretary at the Home Office, the most important civil servant there, came out with a very public resignation. He said he was quitting after 33 years in the civil service and accused the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, of bullying staff, shouting and belittling them and accused her of lying about anonymous briefings to the media. Ever since then, we've had a drip-drip of allegations and briefings from both sides, with some people putting forward more accusations about Miss Patel and behaviour and allies of the Home Secretary saying that there was a dark plot to undermine her policy agenda. Miranda Green, we should just begin by looking at Priti Patel's position as Home Secretary. When she was put into the Home Office last summer, I think there was a collective raising of the eyebrows in Westminster because she'd left Theresa May's cabinet in a very ignominious way after she was seen as conducting her own private foreign policy while the international development 
Development Secretary, and most people assumed that was the end of her frontline political career. Yet, Boris Johnson brought her back because for them, she fulfills a very particular political need. Well, that's right. So she wasn't just rehabilitated after that incident at Diffid. She was brought right into the heart of the political project. And I think that's really important to understand that she's something of a touchstone figure for the Conservative pro-Brexit right. And in a way, when the reshuffle happened, we were all very preoccupied with the front page story of what was happening at the Treasury. But actually, the fact that Priti Patel carries on at the Home Office is possibly as significant in terms of the government's intentions. That, of course, was before these allegations, which have raised serious questions over her future and whether she can stay in the post long term. I suppose the interesting thing is whether there'll be some sort of killer blow or whether there's a continuing drip, drip, drip which sometimes can mean that a minister becomes more of a danger to a government as a terrible distraction in post than getting rid of them to turn the page to another chapter. And these allegations have been essentially coming out through the media, really going back before the general election, in fact. I think since October, I was told by folks in the Home Office, the relationship between Priti Patel and Sir Philip had been deteriorating. And there was briefings from both sides there. Now, of course, Sir Philip has said he hasn't briefed the media about any of this, and Priti Patel has also said that, but both have had allies, friends, choose whatever Westminster jargon you want, with essentially the allegations before his resignation levelled at Miss Patel that she wasn't on on top of the brief she didn't understand and then there were all these bullying allegations of behaviour that is just not acceptable for a public servant in Britain in 2020. The allegations thrown at Sir Philip was that he was being obstructionist, he wasn't helping put forward the government's agenda and he was a minister, you can't do that sort of person. So it's really interesting this because the Home Office obviously is a huge and complicated institution with a very, very wide ranging agenda. You've got the counter-terrorism agenda, which they're responsible for, and all of the other issues they're responsible for. But then on top of that, you've got to invent a new post-Brexit immigration system and administer it. This is no small task. So, you know, the day-to-day tensions that we've heard about from previous ministers in the Home Office who are stepping forward to air their long-term grievances about how it operates, those become very, very dangerous if you've got to do something as complicated as a whole new immigration system. That's the problem for governance, I think. And speaking to people last weekend when his resignation happened, I was told that it was the new immigration system that really broke down this relationship entirely because Priti Patel was saying this has to be done by the end of this year and Sir Philip was saying that's not feasible and she was saying I don't care, it has to be done. Jill Rutter, let's talk about that departure of Sir Philip Rutnam. He's been in the civil service for 33 years, very much the classic white horse civil servant in terms of how he operates, how he speaks, how he looks and he came out on TV last Saturday and announced he was exiting and he'd been offered some kind of financial settlement, one imagines a big six-figure financial settlement to leave quietly and go off and do the sort of things ex-senior civil servants do. But instead, he decided to make this thing public and has pledged to sue the government for constructive dismissal. What did you make of it? It was amazing watching that on Saturday morning. I was just uh, sitting around having a look at Twitter and then suddenly you see these news coming out that not only is Philip Rutnam gone, but he's summoned the cameras to read out a statement making amazing statements about his minister. Because as you say, we know senior civil servants, permanent secretaries fall out with their ministers. That just happens. 
normally that is dealt with with either a payoff. Sometimes you know a peerage. Sometimes a shuffle on to. I think Robert Shrimsey always refers to the Bank of England as uh, thread needles, the retirement home for former Treasury officials. Sometimes you end up there, like John Geeve did when Charles Clark didn't want him anymore in the Home Office. So anyone this senior to take their Secretary of State to court, and I think that goes to what Miranda was saying about is the drip, drip, drip. You know, if this ends up in court. And we have evidence coming out at the Employment Tribunal of the treatment of civil servants by Priti Patel. I think that becomes extraordinarily difficult. And one imagines Philip Rutnam, he's the classic cautious, risk-averse civil servant. You would have to think that he has thought long and hard before he made that move. It's not a man to act impetuously, I think, that he will think he's probably got a pretty good case. And a lot of people listening to his statement last week where he said not actually quite that the Home Secretary was lying, but that the Home Secretary had given assurances which he didn't believe. Lawyer friends of mine all say that was very carefully legally drafted because it's about his belief. He's not defaming the Home Secretary, which he might have said if he'd just come out straight and called her a liar. I think it's very interesting because at the moment he seems pretty determined not to go quietly. And we also have two investigations here going on, Miranda. So there is the court case that Sir Philip is going to pursue, which has been instigated now. We'll hear more about it in the coming months. But also the Cabinet Office has announced its own investigation into these allegations. And we should say that Priti Patel has consistently denied all allegations of bullying and believes that the ministerial code has not been broken under her watch at the Home Office. But that Cabinet Office investigation was announced on Monday. But one thing I found was amazing that Michael Gove gave this statement in the House of Commons announcing this investigation, that the huge level of support from Conservative MPs, from the Prime Minister, from the Cabinet Office Minister, saying that they have full support for Priti Patel, they love her agenda, but all allegations of bullying have to be thoroughly investigated. Why have the Tories gone in so heavily when they have no idea if these allegations are true or not? You know, as journalists, we can listen to them and report them as accurate as we can, but we don't know. That's what the investigation is about. I thought it was actually rather crass to see so many MPs particularly those MPs who have been very, very quick to jump on bullying allegations about John Burko and other figures who may not necessarily share the same politics as them. Well, that's exactly what I thought as well, because what you've seen here is that these conversations about what's acceptable behaviour at work or not and the kind of cultural tone that's set in Westminster about things like Me Too and are now about bullying in the workplace, it's slightly depressing the way people divide along partisan lines. And this is what I thought when you saw Tory MP after Tory MP standing up to express whether spontaneous or coordinated uh, warmth of feeling towards I, I would bet a lot of money that was coordinated. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the first thing that springs to mind was the John Burkow case. And also when you had Labour front benches and the Labour leadership hopefuls all being incredibly hard line about saying that mm. Priti Patel shouldn't be in post while investigations are ongoing, that she's absolutely mm. got to go, while simultaneously the Labour leader still for a few weeks, Jeremy mm. Corbyn, is backing John Burkow for a peerage. This is really depressing, actually, because it shows that a lot of the reforming zeal about Westminster as a workplace and about the culture of government is just going to divide this way. And that's why you have to have investigations, right? Because you have to find out what's true and then you can decide. You need to get to a point where you can be a Remainer who thinks that actually it's worth looking at some of the allegations against Burko and you can be a Lever who thinks, 
well, if Priti Patel really has behaved like some of the allegations, then actually that's not acceptable in a minister. And at the moment, if absolutely everything is just refracted through the leave-remain divide, then we're not really moving on particularly well. Totally. Now, as you said earlier, Jill, ministers and senior civil servants falling out is nothing new. If we think back to Theresa May and Dame Helen Ghosh, if you think of Francis Maud and Lord Kerslake at the Cabinet Office, these are all examples of permanent secretaries who fell out with their ministers and were quietly shuffled on. Now, is this another case? There's always there's something different here because obviously the Boris Johnson government came in with Dominic Cummings at the heart of Downing Street and has talked about, you know, breaking up the civil service, bringing in weirdos and misfits. And some people feel that there's something a lot more sinister about what's going on here. Is that fair, do you think? Or is this just another case of a politician, a civil servant falling out? I think there clearly is a falling out and I think there's some interesting things here, partly about the way we, we manage ministers and ministerial careers because one of the things is some of those allegations that Priti Patel seem to go back to really early in her career. It's a question, actually... Why didn't somebody step in and have a word and say, if you want a good career, this isn't the way to treat your staff and things like that, either her permanent secretary then or her secretary of state? I think the more interesting question there is the week before the Rutland resignation, there'd been some briefing. I think that there was a hit list of senior permanent secretaries. So there was a hit list, not just of Philip Rutland, and the Home Office is always quite a troubled department, but Tom Scholar at the Treasury and Simon MacDonald at the FCO. And these were all people in the sort of Brexiteer sites as people who weren't signed up to the project and therefore had to go. So I think you start seeing something more systematic. If it sort of moves on, last week it was Philip Rutnam, next week it's going to be somebody else. I'm not sure there's that much sign of that at the moment. In the Treasury, Treasury actually seems very happy with Rishi Sunak if they couldn't keep Sajid Javid. Obviously, you don't like to lose the Chancellor three weeks before a budget, a bit inconvenient. (laughs) But if you had to have anyone, then Rishi Sunak had already made a very good impression at the Treasury. Don't get the sense that that's a really tense relationship. Don't know so much about the FCO. But if you do get a sort of systematic taking out of permanent secretaries, then I think you would start to see that as part of a plot. There is another issue as well. What was the real row about? I remember about 18 months ago, I was chairing something the Conservative Party conference. I was talking to Amber Rutt, who had just stepped down from being Home Secretary. And Amber Rudd said she could never persuade her Brexiteer colleagues. So she was mentioning, I think, people like Andrea Lesmester-McVeigh. But she could never persuade the convinced Brexiteers that you couldn't just turn off free movement like a tap on the day. She was talking about April 2019 when we thought we might leave then. Because you've actually got to get people with settled status. You know, these things take time. One of the things that I think is hardest for ministers with no big management experience to judge is what is civil service foot-dragging? And what is actually implementation realism? Now, Priti Patel, her first ministerial job was in DWP. DWP, I think, was a job where actually universal credit's been beset by the unrealism of the timetable. Unrealistic timetables are a real difficulty. But how's a minister to judge the advice from their civil servants? I actually had a look at who were the non-executive directors on the Home Office board. You'd think that might be someone who could give a bit of an objective view to the minister about are they really just being super cautious, ridiculous and things like that? But you look at the people there and you don't think these are the people who would know about implementing a huge, big system change like the one that they want to do on immigration. I think that's something you want to look at. How can you sort of diffuse that and give ministers a bit more independent advice? Another interesting thing is Philip Rutten could 
have asked for a ministerial direction on the new immigration system, on feasibility. That's only been used once by Jonathan Slater, who told his minister that the implementation timetable for T-levels was not feasible. It was introduced by the Treasury because Inland Revenue at the time did not object to Gordon Brown's timetable on introducing tax credits that then went horribly wrong. So he could have asked for a formal direction from the Secretary of State, which allows him to say, I don't think this is doable in the timetable, but if you tell us to do it, we'll get on and do it. But the responsibility is now yours. And maybe permanent secretary should use that more often. I think that's absolutely fascinating, Jill, because this question about how much the migration system was at the heart of this versus the culture clash is something that we will see that will come out, I think, through the investigation, because the timetable for ending free movement is incredibly tight, Miranda. And we know that Philip Rutland did succeed in having a simplified points-based system, which was announced, I think, last week. And it is very simple. It's sort of 70 points. There's about five categories you can get to to get to those 70 points. But that in itself does create huge issues. And you have to think what actually might be more problematic for Priti Patel's long-term career is if that system doesn't come off. Because if there is one mission that is central to the Johnson government, it's ending free movement of people. You know, And I've heard talk around Whitehall that Sajid Javid, one of the reasons he fell out with Dominic Cummings was because of this on an economic basis, not just a practical mm. basis. He said to Downing Street, we need to transition this in over two years. Otherwise, we're going to have huge shortages in the job market and you're not going to be able to build the bridges, the houses, the railways, all these things you want to do. But again, that centre of power, number 10 said, no, we've got to get this done. 31st of January, free movement ends. And I think that is to do with an attitude, isn't it? I've been so struck by the trust that number 10 and the Conservative leadership seem to put in David Frost during the Brexit process because they feel he's on side. And there's clearly some huge problem with people they don't feel are on side. I mean, you talk quite rightly about the difficulties of actually making sure the immigration revolution works post-Brexit. But, you know, the weird thing about ministerial careers is you're often shuffled out by them anyway, right? So careers are often ended mm. in the Home Office by something that happened under a predecessor. So, I mean, that's with Amber Rudd is that's the what example. happened with Amber Rudd. And one should point out that Philip Rudd was actually in charge throughout all that. And that's one reason why backing for him has not been 100% from people who know the department well. So it's always really hard to work out who's responsible for what screw up, basically. I remember being in the committee room when John Reid famously talked about the department not being fit for purpose. And it was in the middle of a big immigration directorate mess. And he did a wonderful moment of playing to the gallery. And then the discussion moved on to the structure of the Home Office rather than, you know, his and his predecessor's mistakes. So there's always a really weird political blame game going on at the same time as a department might well, as Jill has outlined, be trying to grapple with an incredibly complicated change. And whether you can do it at speed or not is a question. We shouldn't forget that Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove, the people at the centre of this radical revolution under the Johnson government are the people who at the DFE pushed through a lot of change very fast and they did tend to decide that people who weren't 100% with their fast timetable must be against them rather than trying to make sure that the changes were effective. 
Well, I think the one thing we have learned is this government is a government of court politics. And I think the reason Boris Johnson wanted that, he saw what happened to Theresa May over her leadership when just bit by bit her political capital went away into the point that her cabinet meetings were essentially live tweeted at some point because people were just not loyal to that central cause. So he created that whole mentality in Downing Street. You're with us and if you're with us, you're with us through everything or you're not. Now, while I have you here, Jill, we must ask you very briefly about how the budget's going to flow into all this because that's coming next Wednesday. You are a former Treasury official as well. Again, we're going to see the same clash that Rishi Sunak does want to have a big radical budget, but he's got these forces of A, the public finances, B, coronavirus, and C, Conservative Party politics here that we've seen all sorts of stories briefed out about. We're going to end fuel duty. We're not going to end fuel duty. And entrepreneurs tax relief. No, no, not about that again. You know, what's your feeling based on everything that you've seen and read and feel from your experience about what this budget's going to look like? How radical would you expect it to be? I don't know, because it's clearly very difficult to jump on a budget at that much notice. I mean, he was chief secretary, but classically in the Treasury, when I was there, the chief secretary would go to the big Monday afternoon budget meeting, but wasn't actually responsible for any elements of the budget, certainly not any of the tax measures. What I don't know is whether Sunak was brought into the Javid budget. So basically, are we going to get Sajid Javid's budget just announced by Rishi Sunak? Or has he got his own ideas? very short timetable to work new ideas up when he took over and to actually get them costed. The timetables have actually shortened since I was in the Treasury because of the presence of the Office of Budget Responsibility. So you actually close things down much earlier in order to allow them to re-forecast what's going on. The thing I would say for Rishi Sunak is that if I were him, I would be saying this is not my only budget. I think I want to be Chancellor, you know, for life, not just for Christmas. I think I'm going to have quite a few goes at this. So actually, what I want to do in this budget is to set a sense of direction and strategy. What am I trying to do over the term? I can appeal to the fact that we've got the Brexit negotiations going on. We don't know yet whether we'll end up with the Johnson deal or no deal. At the end of the year, we've got coronavirus knocking, frankly, everything he does off the headlines anyway. So I would start laying down the groundwork for where I want to be at my next autumn budget for the spending review and where I go long term. And if he's got some wiggle room to actually make good on one or two of the commitments, particularly those that will resonate in the red wall, then I would do those in this budget. But maybe leave pretty much alone for the rest of it and start setting out my roadmap for the future not so much loads of specifics this time around. Yes, it's a terrible context to be trying to put together a budget, except that politically it gives him the cover to put a lot of decisions forward to the autumn. So I would I very much agree with that. It's a good thing to be more strategic and give a sense of direction rather than be a sort of typical, what you might call Brownian or Osbornian chancellor of, oh my God, there's a budget and here are a few rabbits bouncing around. So I think if he actually can say, I'm a different sort of chancellor, I'm thinking long term, I'm really interested in rebuilding this country for the long term, tackling these deep-seated problems, then I think that'd be great. And there's some brilliant trade-offs, right? The direction of green policy on the environment emissions mm-hmm. versus regional policy and regional regeneration, now complicated by less airline travel and whether you should subsidise those air routes again. 
those questions will look much clearer in the autumn, probably. Well, I know you'll all be excited to hear more about the budget, and that's why we will have a Budget Day special mini FT Politics podcast, which hopefully we'll have to you by Wednesday evening. But until then, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jim, Laura, Miranda and Jill Rutter for joining us. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Jack Denton. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria algae body oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.